maintaining faith in an age of skepticism. And so two weeks ago, we started and we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1 and talked about how God asked us to supplement our faith, and there was a list of items there. And then last week in 2 Peter and in most of Jude, we went back and forth doing a parallel between uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude and the very, very harsh, strong rebuke that is given against these false teachers, these skeptics who would come in this final age, and that we should be wary of them and what they would try to do, and that they are cons. They're people who are trying to get your money, and they find excuses to live in any way that they want, and they scoff at things, supernatural beings, angels with powers, and they scoff at things they don't understand. And, and I realized last week was kind of low. <laughs> My wife was talking to me afterwards. I'm glad that I went first and she did her sermon afterwards because it's a very strong rebuke. It is a very harsh rebuke. It's a very strong warning that comes from Peter and also from Jude about be wary of these kinds of people who would do this and who would come against you in that manner. So tonight, we're going to end the rest of 2 Peter by looking at chapter 3 and also the end of And I'm going to do my best to swing upwards and end on a positive note. So we leave here feeling affirmed with our faith bolstered. We feel like, you know what, we can do this. God has taken care of us. He has a plan. And as I was reading through this, not just for tonight, but just in my own devotion, I was reminded, these are these little letters tucked away in the back of your Bible. Kind of easy to overlook these. In my mind, in some ways, these are kind of like, you know, Micah and Habakkuk, maybe Haggai, these books that you get around every once in a while to reading. And then as you read them, even though they were written for a completely different audience and they're very small and probably easy to look over. There's a lot of good stuff there, a lot of encouragement that's found in these letters. Jude, extremely small, but yet a very powerful, powerful letter. And we are blessed that these have been preserved for us. And here we are 2,000 years later, and God, through his providence, has decided to preserve these small little letters to these churches for us, and we still gain benefit from their inspiration even today. So let's dive right into 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to start again at verse 1. And like last week, I'm going to go back and forward between 2 Peter and also its parallel passages in Jude. And it says, This is my second letter to you, dear friends. And in both of them, I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and, and this is important, memory. So pay attention to that. In fact, I'll... I'll go ahead and cat out of the bag, if you will. I'll give away the ending right now. I believe this whole series where I, I had this title, Maintaining Faith in an Age of Skepticism, the key to this is memory. And you're going to see that, and I'm going to try and highlight that tonight, especially out of chapter 3 in 2 Peter and in the latter verses of Jude. The way that you maintain your faith and the way that we are able to live in an age full of skepticism, an age of doubt, is you've got to have a long memory. And in different ways, you'll see tonight, as they say this over and over and over. And so here we are, 2 Peter chapter 3, end of verse 1. I have tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. Most of what we face when it comes to living in an age of skepticism, a lot of what we have to do as we are trying to maintain our faith 
really is a battle that takes place in our mind. Much of it is about bringing our thoughts captive. Much of it is about a choice that we make to be disciplined in the way that we think. And as I've mentioned the last two weeks, I'll say it again, it is a faith statement. I cannot prove these things. If I could prove them, they would not require faith. These are things that I accept, I trust, I believe God's word, even at times when I cannot prove them. And I look forward, we're going to come across that in these chapters as well, I look forward to what's coming. And I trust that God is true to his word. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what maintaining faith is. I can't prove it. I choose it. I can't always demonstrate it. I believe it. I can't always verify it. But I accept it. And that's not blind ignorance. That's not me uh, turning off my intellect. You know, these, these skeptical things that I've heard and come across over the years as people try to dismiss this, you know, religion, faith, that's a crutch for weaker-minded people. No, it's not. I have carefully laid this out. And as a mature disciple of Christ, you should look through the scriptures. You should read them carefully for themselves. It does not require that you turn off your ability to think critically. But you do all of that, and then at some point you have to step back from it, and you go, I choose this. I have made a choice. I believe the word of God. And then you stand on that because you're not going to be able to prove it. You can demonstrate it at times. God will demonstrate his power in your life. You will have testimony, and that's the memory part that's going to come in that we're going to talk about. God will do things to verify his word to you. And as you walk through your Christian walk, you continually affirm that choice. I choose to believe this, and I remember what God has done for me, and I look forward to what I believe he's going to do. And that really is a faith walk. And that's how we maintain our faith in an age of skepticism. There we go. I did that in six minutes, and you're dismissed. And you, No, I'm kidding. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and... <laughs> Pastor's like, no. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. <laughs> but you just heard the summary right at the beginning. Now, here's your challenge as mature, mature disciples of Christ. Can you stay with me for another 40 minutes? Here's my challenge. Can I keep you to stay with me for the next 40 minutes as we walk through the scriptures that continue to affirm what I've already claimed? Verse 2. I want you to remember what the holy prophets said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through your apostles. And then a parallel verse, Jude 17 but you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus predicted. So Peter calls to remembrance what the holy prophet said long ago and the commands of the apostles. Jude, remember what the apostles have told you. So we see an endorsement, if you will, of what we would call the Old Testament and our New Testament scriptures. But key in both Peter and in Jude is this idea of memory. You need to remember what you've been told, both from the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament, and from the apostles, I'm speaking in generic terms, what we would refer to as the New Testament scriptures. It's memory that helps you maintain your faith. You need to remember what God has done. 
Verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, here they come again, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. How many of you, you don't even have to put it in a religious faith context like this. How many of you can look around at the news, social media, and everywhere around you, you see fill-in-the-blank topic, people who scoff and they mock everything. This is a description of the age that we live in, I think, more than ever before. It is an age of constant doubt, and not just doubt like someone who's struggling with their faith is this real, but it's, it's an age of defiance. It's an age of open mocking and a dismissal of any kind of authority. And Peter and Jude both warned about this 2,000 years ago, that there is coming a time when there will be scoffers who mock the truth. They make fun of it. They draw delight. They enjoy insulting. They enjoy being critical of. They enjoy mocking what is going on with truth and being dismissive of it. Jude 18 and 19 says, They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. Last week, if you remember, as we were looking at 2 Peter chapter 2 and parts of Jude, they were described as animals, unthinking animals, whose only purpose was meant for destruction. Here again, we see this idea picked up in Jude where he says they follow their natural instincts, their, their base desires, if you will. These are people who are not really doing thinking for themselves. They are being driven by their emotions. They're being driven by their lusts. They're being driven... By whatever desire they have at the moment, that's what they pursue. It's a lack of discipline. And so the scripture in Jude describes them as these people headed towards destruction. These are the people who mock and make fun of things, and they cause divisions when they're among you. I absolutely believe in grace and mercy. We are saved by grace through faith. I am not taking anything away from that. But as we mature in our walk with Christ... There is an expectation that we develop disciplines. It's one thing when a child throws a temper tantrum. You see a two- or a three-year-old, and they don't get what they want, and they throw down their toy, and they stomp their foot, and they say no. And it's not acceptable, but you can kind of tolerate that at least a little bit from a two- or a three-year-old. But then you see an older child, a teenager, and especially when you see an adult, and they don't get their way, and then they act like in a tantrum, they have no discipline. And you realize something's off with that. It's no different in our spiritual walk with God. As we continue to grow in our relationship with Christ, there's an expectation that we develop some disciplines. There's an expectation that we have the ability to tell ourselves, no, I don't need my pastor looking over my shoulder with every decision I make. I don't need to call him every time I need to make a major life decision. By all means, seek the input of your spiritual guidance, you know, the, the wisdom of the pastors in your life, but I can read scripture. I can see what the word of God tells me. I don't need 
his counsel if I find clear direction from Scripture, if it speaks to something. As I grow and mature, there's an expectation that I develop some discipline. And the primary way that we see discipline, both in the natural realm and in the spiritual realm, is that we learn to tell ourselves, no, I'm a big boy. Hopefully you're a big boy and a big girl as you grow up in Christ. And you can tell yourself, no, I don't do everything that I desire. I don't do and pursue every thought that comes into my head. But in contrast to that, we see these ones who create divisions among people. They split up congregations. They split up the faith. They worm their way in, as Jude said, and we talked about last week, into our fellowship. And really, all they want is whatever they feel like doing. And they're going to seek to justify their behavior. And they're going to pursue whatever action makes them feel good at the time like an unthinking animal following their base instincts. And Peter and Jude warn against that as things that you need to watch out for in the last day because these are not good things. These are not people who really are filled with God's Spirit. These are not people who are servants of Christ. Christ. Excuse me. Jumping back to 2 Peter. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Key verse here. They deliberately forget, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Look at that previous verse. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? In these last days, these scoffers, these people who mock at truth, are dismissive of things. And they're, well, what about that? You claim this. Scripture says this, but it hasn't happened yet. And Peter warns, these are the same people who are going to deliberately forget what God's done. They have a memory problem. And in their case, it's by choice. It's to their convenience that they don't remember what God has done. In contrast to that, both Peter and Jude call the faithful to have long memories. You want to stimulate wholesome thinking amongst you. I I want to call to your remembrance what God has done. Again, a key to maintaining our faith is a long memory and that mental discipline that even when times are low, even when times are difficult, I can think back on everything God has done for me and how much good that he has given me and how much he has cared for me. And I don't make decisions based in the moment. I make decisions based on what I know is right. My memory is what helps me maintain my faith. Let me go back and read the previous verse just so they connect together. Again, Chapter 3, verse 5, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water, and he surrounded it with water, and then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when the ungodly people will be destroyed. So we see this curious contrast in Second Peter that, There was a time in the past when God decided to judge humanity 
and he brought destruction on the world, on his creation, through a great flood. He used massive amounts of water to wipe the slates and clean, if you will, to start over. And he made a promise to Noah. He, in fact, enacted a covenant and said, I will never do that again. I will not destroy the world again with water. Here in 2 Peter, we see him looking forward to a day when God will have enough, and once again, he will bring judgment on the earth. But this time, he says that God will do it with a different element. This time, God is going to wipe this slate, wipe the slate clean, excuse me, once again. But instead of using water, he's going to use heat, fervent heat, fire. He's going to burn things up. This is a different topic for another night. Maybe I'll come back to this another time. I do believe that God is going to do that, but we also have to balance that with multiple places in Scripture where he talks about a new heaven and a new earth. We see Paul in Romans talking about how creation groans eagerly awaiting its redemption. So I do believe that God is going to bring fire, but I don't think it's in the sense of a nuclear option where he's going to burn up everything, completely dissolve it, destroy it, and there's nothing that's redeemed. At some level, God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth, but Scripture also tells us at some level he's redeeming his creation. It's not wipe it out in the sense of throw everything off the table, but we're going to clean it up. We're going to purify it. We're going to burn away everything that's wrong. And then when it's laid bare, I'm going to start again. And I'll create something new out of it, and I'll restore what's there. And, and I will restore it to its original intent and purpose. So Peter is calling his readers not only to look back and remember what God has done, I'm going to call to your remembrance what we've told you. But he also looks ahead and he says, you need to keep in mind at some point God is going to bring judgment on those skeptics. God will bring judgment at some point against those people who are scoffing and who are dismissive of this and deliberately have a short memory. They intentionally do not want to remember what God has done. So we pull from the past, and then we look forward ahead, recognizing there's still more to come. In contrast to those people, but you, here we go again, must not forget. So already, just in this one chapter, multiple times we've seen this reference to memory. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. Let me pause here, just a little rabbit trail interpretive principle here. Peter is using an example. He says it is like, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. This is not a lockdown math principle. Okay, so you may have come across at times some very interesting interpretive schemes for trying to set up a timeline for the Bible or creation or other things like that. And there's some sort of special formula that's been worked out with, you know, when we see day reference at this place in Scripture, it's to a thousand years here. And when you add up this and this and this, we come up with fill in the blank number of thousand years. I am convinced that is not what Peter is doing right here. He's using a comparison. The point is not to create a Genesis timeline. Peter's point here was to demonstrate that time is irrelevant to God. 
a day's like a thousand years to God. What, what does it matter? And on the flip side, a thousand years, it's like a day to God. What does it matter? He exists outside of the confines of time. We can't even describe anything. Here's a fun challenge for you sometime. Mental exercise, not for right now, but for some other time. Try to describe, try to have a conversation and not make it temporal. Our language is temporal. How do you describe something outside of time? What is before, which is temporal language, the beginning? What comes after temporal language, the end? So, like we can't, we can't even do it. We do not have words. We do not have the capability to express or even think outside of time. We're bound by it, but God's not. And Peter was reminding his audience there, God is not bound by time. He's not worried about it. Thousand years, one day to God. One day, thousand years. Doesn't matter. And that, my brothers and sisters, is all he was doing here. There's not some secret special interpretive scheme for setting up a creation timeline. Enough on that little rabbit trail. Coming back to what's right here in this passage and what he's intending, why is he pointing out that time is irrelevant to God? Not to be irritating, not to be a discouragement to people, but actually as a way to build faith because in the next verse he said, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. Here's something to remember with God's judgment and why we don't fear it as his children. Notice the next sentence. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Now, we know from reading Scripture that judgment is going to come at some point, and people will be destroyed as a result of their decisions, but that's not God's intent. That's not his desire. God is not Zeus holding lightning bolts, waiting to zap people. He's not Thor controlling thunder with a hammer, waiting to smash anyone. These are pagan images of God, this vengeful God who's barely holding back his judgment, and you're lucky if he doesn't squash you today. That's not a biblical representation of God. Is God capable of judgment? Absolutely. Does he reserve all right for that? Most certainly. You heard our pastor mention that this morning. But the scripture repeatedly describes him as a patient God, someone who's not desiring to bring judgment on the world. He will eventually because his justice requires it. But at the moment, he's waiting and he's extending opportunity and opportunity and opportunity and opportunity in hopes that people will turn their attention to him. I find great hope in that because what I see out of this is a God who's saying, if you will make a step towards me, I'll meet you. If you will make an effort, I will help you. If you will turn to me, I will extend to you grace and mercy. I don't want to destroy you. I have good things planned for you. But you need to come to me. You need to find repentance. I was doing one of the discipleship classes earlier this week, and we were doing a lesson on loving God. And we see throughout Scripture over and over and over again, the equivalence to loving God is the idea of obedience. We demonstrate our love towards God when we are obedient to what he asks us to do. And so again, we see here in 2 Peter chapter 3, this example of God is extremely patient. 
And whether it's a thousand years or one day, it doesn't matter to him. He, it's like he keeps extending. This is, I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but when I read this, I get this image of God deciding, I'll give him a little longer. Not quite yet. What's a few more days, years, months, whatever it may be? I, I want them to come to me. I'm, I'm going to extend that grace one more time. Maybe, maybe this time they'll listen. Maybe this time I can get their attention and they'll turn towards me. So we see this image of a graceful, loving God who will bring judgment at some point. Peter just said he's going to destroy the world with fire. But then he balances that by immediately saying, but not yet. Because he's patient. And he doesn't want to destroy anybody. And so for our sakes, he's trying to give people time to repent. But again, flipping back to the judgment side, the very next verse. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. And the very elements themselves will disappear in fire. And the earth and everything on it will be, be found to deserve judgment. A lot of translations say, and everything on the earth will be laid bare. It's like, like as if it's opened up before God. No excuses, nothing to hide behind and God will be able to judge everything for what it is. Interesting little side note as I was studying for this. It says that the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. That word there, kind of a fun little word play. This is the only place in scripture that that word occurs, that terrible noise. We do find that same Greek word used in secular documents. And it was to describe a loud noise, often a hissing noise, it was often used to describe the crackle of a fire. You know, that hissing, popping sound you get with a really hot flame? The descriptor, the Greek word for that sound that a fire makes is the word that Peter uses right here in this passage when he says, the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise. So just a kind of a fun wordplay image there. It's interesting, we've got this idea that he's, he's going to use this fire and he's going to burn it all away and it's going to be laid bare and there will be judgment and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. It's coming. Right now he's long-suffering towards us. But that judgment is coming at some point. And since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live what holy, godly lives you should live. And how do we live this holy, godly life? Watch. Looking forward to the day of God. And how's this for all of us who really like it as it is right now? Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. The image we see in Scripture at least in Second Peter, the idea that the mature Christian is looking forward to the day of Jesus and praying that it would hurry up and come soon. I am in no rush to meet my maker. I will readily admit that. Things I don't like about my life, but I, I'm in no hurry to end it anytime soon. But we see in Scripture this mature response towards Christ is that we pray for God's mercy. We do our best to share with others what he's done for us. We want to see people come towards him. 
But at the same time, we're looking forward to his return, knowing that it will bring judgment. And there's this eager anticipation, this, come on, God, hurry up. Let's get moving. Let's see this happen. And on that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth that he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. So again, we see multiple calls to remembrance. Look back, see what he's done. Don't forget that. And at the same time, look forward to what he's bringing. How do we maintain our faith? Long memory. Look at what God's done for us. And a forward-looking posture in faith, believing that he is bringing something to us. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. While you are waiting. We see this idea again of there's some patience level that's expected here. It means it hasn't happened. I know I'm stating the obvious, but pause here for a second. While we wait, that means I don't know when it's coming. While we wait, means it's not here yet. While we wait, that means I'm still enduring. While we wait, that means I still live in this age of skepticism surrounded by all these people who mock truth, who scoff at things that they don't understand. And while I wait, and I wait, and I wait, and quite literally, we wait our entire lifetime, God calls us to live peaceably. So I look back, and my memory, I recall what God has done for me. I look forward, and I eagerly await his return. And in the present, I wait patiently. And I do my best to live in peace with everyone around me. And as simple as that sounds, it'll take your lifetime to master it. And it's much easier to say it than it is to do it. But this is the call that we see in Scripture. This is what's expected of big boys and girls in Christ. This is what's expected of mature Christians. I stay grounded and rooted in him and I look to the past, and I remember what he's brought me from. I look to the future, and I eagerly await where he's going to come back. And in the present, I'm patient. And in the present, I do my best to live in peace. And this serves as an example to the world around us with this swirling mass of chaos and destruction and skepticism and doubt and fear and anger, and rebellion, and mockery, and insult, and, 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 and. And so you get this image of this maelstrom of content. You get this image of a storm of life. And yet, in the middle of all that, you see these lights, these Christians who live differently, and they stay grooted and rounded, grounded, and they live patient lives, and they live peaceable lives, and it stands out because it lives so different. It's such a stark contrast to everything that's around them. And this is what we're called to. And I believe that this is the largest part of our witness. Yes, we share the gospel message. Yes, we talk with other people. 
But one of the strongest things you can do is in a world around you that's falling apart, as you interact with your neighbors, your coworkers, family members who do not live the way that you do, when you live a grounded, peaceful life, they look at you and they should see something different. And then when they ask, be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. That is Christian witness. It's carried out far more in my actions and in the way that I live day to day than it is from the words that come out of my mouth on the occasion that I get a chance to share the gospel message. I share the gospel message constantly by the way I live. And when I live grounded and when I live patient and I live peaceably and I await his return, that speaks to the world around me. Let's jump back into Jude. We've read multiple passages out of Peter. Let's swing back over to Jude. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. So again, we see this idea of praying and we're waiting for things to happen and then we come over to Jude and we build each other up. We pray in the power of the Spirit. We await the mercy of Jesus. A lot of patience going on. To be fair, it's not, it's not a very active state. It doesn't seem like there's much action that's happening here. But yet, this call from both of these apostles is the idea that as we await for God to come, you stay grounded and you pray and you await and you're patient. You maintain your faith by living steady. You maintain your faith by living peaceably. You maintain your faith by praying in the power of the Spirit. And so you stay grounded and you stay steady. It doesn't always sound exciting. but it's important. This is a different lesson for another time, but this is spiritual warfare, by the way. Often when we talk about the idea of spiritual warfare, we use language like fight and battle. Maybe I'll do this some other Sunday night. I challenge you to go through, especially the New Testament, and see what kind of language you actually see. What you're going to get a whole lot more is stand, resist, Wait. Exciting words, right? <laughs> Action words. You're just feeling like a mighty warrior right now when you hear that. But the biblical call is that we stand firm. We resist the devil. We patiently wait for our deliverance. We see again in this passage the idea that we wait on the mercy of Jesus. And we keep ourselves in God's love. Every time you are faced, you heard our pastor mention it, we've got two staff members tonight who are homesick. And every time we're faced with difficult life challenges, whether it's a physical ailment, it's a financial burden, it's a test of our faith in some other way, we're dealing with some emotional heartache, we're dealing with a tense family situation, every time we come up against these things and we choose, faith act, we choose to stay grounded. We choose not to move. That act of resistance 
is an act of spiritual warfare. That act of just standing still and saying, I'm not going anywhere. I am patiently awaiting on my redemption. I choose to believe that God is coming back for me one day. It's a spiritual act of warfare, and in some ways it is an act of defiance. It may not be the stomp on the devil kind of language that gets people riled up and excited, but it's the mature Christian response that says, no, I'm not going anywhere. Come what may, I am rooted and grounded in this. I choose, and I keep using that language over and over, and I hope someone hears me tonight. I choose to believe this. This is a faith statement. It is a faith walk. I choose that this is how I live, whether or not I can prove it, whether or not I can feel like it, whether or not times are favorable, it doesn't matter. I'm grounded in this, and I patiently await God's mercy, as we see in this passage from 2 Peter. Or excuse me, we're in Jude at the moment. But again, 2 Peter and Jude both talk to this idea that we patiently await that redemption that God brings to us. And as we do that, just the act of waiting on God is an act of resistance. Just the act of continuing to live a peaceful life and looking forward to the future of when he'll return is an act of defiance against the powers of darkness in this world that would seek to destroy us and seek to distract us. And their whole goal is movement in the idea that you move away from God. And even if you don't feel like you're making progress, I don't know who I'm speaking to right now. This isn't even in my notes, but listen to me. Even if in life you don't feel like you're making progress, you've done some internal self-assessment, oh, Jesus, and you're not satisfied with what you see and you think, I, I should be doing fill in the blank and why isn't this happening for me right now? And I should have already accomplished X, Y, Z. I should be climbing this mountain or whatever it may be. And you've set up this image in your head and you think this is where I should be in my walk with God. And so you've got doubt and you've got shame. I rebuke that right now in the name of Jesus that is not from God. Every day that you wake up, and you choose to live for him, even when you don't feel like you're making progress, just the act of standing firm, grounded and rooted in what you know is an act of spiritual warfare. And that's what God has called us to do. He did not call us to slay giants and to climb over every mountain. By the way, we never accomplish any of that. He works it through us. It's never been about you. It's all for his glory and his kingdom. And so you may not feel like you're doing much, but you just stay grounded. You just do what you know is right. And just the act of standing firm and living patiently awaiting his redemption is enough. God hasn't asked you to do anything more than that. Now, there are times when God calls us to step out on faith. That's not what I'm talking about. But in the day-to-day -day life, you realize when we read throughout Scripture, I'm way off my notes now, but somebody needs to hear this. You realize when we look at Scripture and we talk about heroes of faith, we're hitting the highlights of their life. We see the high points, 
And sometimes, and it's good, Scripture records low points where people make poor choices, and we can learn from that. But there's a whole lot of in-between those highs and lows that's never recorded in Scripture, where they got up every day, and they just went to work, and they just lived life. But we see multiple passages, like what we've got right here, where they're called to just stand, just stay grounded in it, just stay rooted in this, eagerly await God's mercy. And so if you're here tonight, or maybe you're not here and you're just listening, and you've got some self-doubt about how much you should be doing in the kingdom of God, and you don't feel like that's happening right now, you get up every morning and you look yourself in the mirror and you say, I choose to live this way, and I am awaiting his redemption. And until he comes, or until death takes me, I will stand firm in this. Yes, 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 yes. And when you stand firm in this, God looks at you and he says, well done. That's, that's my boy. That's my girl. And God is pleased with that. And if you feel like that's all you ever do, when you reach the end of this race, it's enough. He's not expecting more than that. Death and funerals are hard for us. It, it's hard to watch people pass on. But I, when I go to funerals, I'm fascinated when I get to attend the funeral for someone who has lived a long, full life, and they've been faithful. Some of you are nodding your heads. You know what I'm talking about. I can think of funerals I've been to elders who I saw as giants in my life, and it's not because they started six churches. It's not because they were missionaries for 40 years. I can think of a man when we were in Turlock. He worked a job. He was faithful to church, came into Pentecost, probably in his early 20s, lived to be about 80, and for 60 years, he just loved God. And he was a consistent, faithful man, and that man was a giant to me as a young minister. Not because he did something incredible, but just because he wouldn't move. So somebody please hear me tonight who's struggling with this idea. You not moving is enough. And some days that may be all you're capable of. And God's okay with that. And we see repeatedly in different ways throughout the scripture a call to Christian maturity where God simply asks us not to move. And not moving is pleasing to him. Not moving is spiritual warfare. Not moving is mature discipleship. Amen. Enough on that. Let me back up one verse. Here we are in Jude 21. Await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life, in this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. Await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not just that we await on God's mercy. But now watch the flip side of this. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Because we do have doubt. And we struggle at different times. And this just reaffirms what I've just said. Notice whose faith is wavering. It's the idea of movement. A lot of faith is not necessarily even quote-unquote forward progress at times. A lot of faith is just simply you're hunkered down and you're, rooted, you're grounded. You're not going anywhere. And at times in life, when either we or those around us, 
their, their faith gets a little shaky. Something's hit them really hard. It's, it, they're stumbling. It's blindsided them. Some life situation happens to them, and they're struggling with it. Scripture calls on us, and Jude says that we await God's mercy, and then we extend that mercy towards others when they're feeling a little shaky, when that ground is not stable beneath them, when they've been hit by something unexpectedly, and their faith is wavering. Jude says, you, you extend mercy to them. You, you show mercy to them. I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but I think the implication there is, because remember, at some point, something's going to hit you too. And, and you may end up a little rocky at some point, and, you, and you're going to want others to show mercy to you. So as you await God's mercy, you extend it to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. So that This idea that we await on God's mercy, and then we extend mercy to others. A big part of it. Mercy is very important to God. I'm going to jump back again over into Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Remember our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Speaking of these things in all his letters, some of his comments are hard to understand, and those who are ignorant and unstable, they've twisted his letters to mean something quite different just as they do with other parts of Scripture. And this will result in their death. You already know these things, dear friends, so be on guard. Be on guard, and then you will not be carried away by the errors of these wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All glory to him, both now and forever. Amen both now and forever, amen. And then I want to swing back to Jude because I wanted to end, I like what Jude does as he's wrapping it up. So this is a bit of a rabbit trail. I'm doing this on purpose before I pull up those last two verses of Jude. How many of you have ever had a time when you're praying, you may have even heard instruction in a service and it's, you know, now it's time to, to praise God. I want you to pray in your own way. Right? How many times have we heard something like this? In your own way, I just want you to take a moment and praise God. And if we're being honest, have you ever stood there and thought, I haven't got a clue what to say? Anybody ever feel like that? Here's a freebie for you. There's a fancy word in Christian liturgy called a benediction. Whether you remember that is not important. The idea of a benediction is it's usually a blessing in Scripture, often that comes at the end of a letter. There are some really, really elegant, well-worded benedictions throughout Scripture. I would encourage you to memorize some of them. Do anything wrong? Jesus talked about praying through Scripture. And so you're at a loss at times, and you want to give God praise. And you're thinking, I, I wish anybody else, I don't think it's just me, ever wish at times you could give God something just a little more elegant, a little more eloquent than what you feel like is coming out of your own mouth? Let me give you a free cheat that is totally in line with the Scriptures. Take some time and learn a few of these benedictions from Scripture. And when you get in those moments where you're feeling a little stuck and you're not sure what to say, begin to quote some of these passages. It will build your faith. It will affirm your walk with God. And it offers praise to God 
in a way that he finds acceptable and pleasing. And I will give you your first one for free right now. Jude 24 and 25. Pray this the next time you're stuck and you're not quite sure what to say. Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him alone who is God, our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory and majesty and power and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. Anybody feel the spirit right now? Amen. Take some time. Learn a few of these benedictions. Again, it will encourage and build your faith. It's a chance to say something and just offer that praise back to God. And I wanted to end on that high note. Kind of wrapping up the series. I put this little table together this afternoon. You can just skim through that. We see quite a contrast when we look at 2 Peter and Jude between the skeptics in the last day. Again, I titled this three-part series, Maintaining Faith in an Age of Skepticism. On one side, they describe skeptics as those who deny their master and they slander their truth and they will lie to get your money and they scoff at supernatural beings and they scoff at things they don't understand and they brag about themselves and they mock the truth and they satisfy ungodly desires and they deliberately forget what God has done. But then in contrast, look at the other side. These are things we can do. And they're not wild, crazy things. They're not things that are too difficult for us. Respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith. Why don't you stand with me as I'm getting ready to close? Remember what the prophets and apostles said. Don't forget. See all these memory things? Remember. Don't forget. Look forward to the day of God. Look forward to a new heaven and earth. While waiting, live a peaceful life. Build each other up. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Await Christ's mercy. Show mercy to others. Remember the Lord's patience. Be on your guard and grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. Aren't you thankful that Scripture doesn't leave us without instruction? Aren't you thankful that not only do we see instruction, you can look at this list and you go, you know, I, I can do that. These are realistic things. I, I'm capable of this. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We live in an age of skepticism. We live in a world that is full of doubt and it's full of insults and mocking and anger and it's dismissive of your authority and your scripture. And yet you clearly warn us not only of their cudging judgment, but you also give us hope and we're able to look to the past and remember where you brought us from and we're able to look to the forward. We look forward to the future. We look forward to what you're bringing. We eagerly await your return as you redeem us. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that in that meantime, in the present, we can stand firm. And as we stand firm in you, you are pleased with us in that life we live in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.